You're listening to a Sun Life podcast. We pray that you will be blessed by the teaching of God's word. For more information, visit sunlife.org.au. Enjoy the sermon. Thank you, worship team. Okay, now we've got a come to a fantastic part of our, our service where we have a very special person who needs no introduction. Um, the only, the only thing I, I could say about the, uh, the person who's about to come up, James, <laughs> is that uh, we'd love for him to come be preaching more often, but uh, we, we know that he's, he, God's using him in a wonderful way outside of church, so, so it's okay. We, we, we're happy to have him uh, you know, every few months. It's fantastic. So without further ado, I'd like to invite our brother uh, James up uh, to share with us on uh, a very uh, a wonderful passage in Colossians. Let's, let's put our hands together to, for James. <laughs> All right, thanks, Simon. Okay. All right, so let's start. Jesus is the answer. And with just those four words, that could be my entire message and we could just get on with church news and go home. Jesus is the answer. The only problem is that it's a statement we've heard so many times before that it's become almost a slogan, a catchphrase, and potentially it's lost its meaning. Jesus is the answer, but what does it mean? If Jesus is the answer, then what is the question that's being asked? If Jesus is the answer, then what's the problem that needs to be addressed? Maybe it depends a bit on how it's being said. If it's just Jesus is the answer, then it's probably just that stock standard sort of throwaway line that people use. If it's uh, Jesus is the answer, then that probably means that you've fallen asleep in connect group and you didn't actually hear the question and you're just, you know, going for the safest bet. Um, Jesus is the answer, maybe? Of course, that will never happen in a Sun Life connect group. But instead, if it's like, Jesus is the answer, then the context is probably most likely that you're at some super Pentecostal rally. And, you know, the longer and the higher and the more, more voice wavering there is, then the stronger it's the power, right? You know, that's, that's how it works, right? Obviously, I'm kidding around, but what we share with our enthusiastic Pentecostal brothers and sisters, in fact, with all our Christian brothers and sisters, is the fact that Jesus is the answer. So why do I bring this up? Well, as you probably guessed, the focus of our passage today is in the book of Colossians is that the answer is Jesus. And I have to admit, of course, this is nothing new. In fact, if you've been around at Sun Life for at least the last four years, since 2019, then it's very possible you've heard something similar. And uh, more precisely, possibly myself saying exactly the same thing about this same passage. And this was not planned, I can tell you, and uh, not that anyone would remember, but it won't be exactly the same message as then. So with that, what passage are we looking at today? Well, for those of you who were here last week, you'll know that Pastor Vin launched the Colossian uh, series last week and covered the first half of Colossians chapter one. And we're gonna be doing the rest of it today. Now, to reiterate a bit, particularly for those who were away, the theme of his message last week was the faithful Colossians. And as an introduction into this series, he mentioned that unlike some of the other churches that Paul had written letters to, the Colossian church, that is the the church in Colossae, was actually doing pretty well. They were faithful. They had been established by a believer called uh, Epiphras, who seemingly had done a really good job. And one problem was, and we'll see more of this next week, is that from what Paul writes, it appeared some outsiders had come into their midst and were saying that what they had wasn't enough. What they had learned, what they had been taught by Epaphras, wasn't sufficient and that they needed more. 
And the purpose of this letter of Paul's seemed to be to counter uh, those issues. In last week's message, starting by praying for them, and in this week's passage, by starting to reinforce the theology that they had already been taught, beginning with one concept that Paul felt was of primary importance, which was, anyone? Jesus is the answer. So just those were four words. Now, you may also remember that in Pastor Ben's message last week covering Paul's prayer for the Colossians, he divided his message into two sections. Firstly, the why of Paul's prayer, and then secondly, the what of Paul's prayer. And very conveniently, we're going to do exactly the same thing today. Look at first why Jesus is the answer, and then what Jesus is the answer for. And don't worry, I haven't got seven points this week. You know, that would just be ridiculous. I've got, I've got six. <laughs> so... Three for why Jesus is the answer, and three for what he is the answer for. Uh, But before we get into it, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you indeed for your word, um, as always this morning. And we thank you for this opportunity to be able to hear your revelation to us through this letter that Paul had written to this church. And as we study it together, may you teach us, particularly illuminate those areas that may be more difficult and more challenging. And we pray that by your spirit, you will make this passage alive to us today. May it not just speak to our minds, but to our hearts and spirits as well. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right. So as we said before, we're going to be looking at why Jesus is the answer, and then after that, what Jesus is the answer to. And the first part, the why, is found just in verses 15 to 20. So let's read that first. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. It's also in your church app as well. So verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For all things in heaven and on earth were created in Him. All things, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions, whether principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and all things are held together in him. Verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church, as well as the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself may become first in all things. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in the Son, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. By making peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. All right, so those are our first verses. And before we actually look at them in any detail, there's a couple of things I want to point out. And these are not the, the um, uh, seven points, by the way. They're just a couple of things to note. The first thing is, this passage is really heavy on the theology. And in these first few va- uh, verses, for example, if you were to list all the ologies... There's an obvious theme of Christology, about Christ. But there's also arguably some angelology about angels. There's also some soteriology about salvation. And also a focus on creation, creationology. And then also particularly Trinityology. And I'm not sure if you realize, but I'm just making up words at this point. That's my lack of any formal biblical training coming through. But my point is, is that it's very rich and uh, a very rich and challenging passage uh, theologically. And in fact, in the remaining chapter, it doesn't actually get any easier, if anything, a bit harder, because potentially we can get into topics like predestination and free will, perseverance of the saints, Calvinism, Arminianism, sufficiency of Christ, and so on. So potentially a lot of very challenging stuff. And our goal today is to try to make it as simple as we possibly can. So that's my first note. My second note is this, is that in those first six verses, there's a lot of good, albeit challenging, content. But my first impression of it was that it was kind of a bit messy. Like, I'm someone who likes everything to be nice and ordered. Like, if there's six verses, I like the first two verses to be the first point, the second two be the, to be the second point, the third two to be the th- uh, third point. 
But looking at this passage, well, it seemed like it was all over the place. Like it repeats itself, it goes to one topic and then back again. It just seems a bit messy. But fortunately, there was a bit of a clue for me in the translation that I use. And if we go to the next slide, you can see this. Um, not the actual words, it's uh, going to be too small. So next slide. There we are. But you can see in the NIV, which is on the left there, um, our passage is highlighted in blue. And it looks like just any other paragraph. But in the Net Bible, uh, the New English Translation, which is the one I've been reading from, and one that I highly recommend, by the way, it's got all these very helpful translation notes. So in the Net Bible in the green, you can see that it's formatted a bit differently. So it's sort of been inset a little bit more. And there's a reason for this, which you can see in the translator notes. Next slide. Um, I'll read it out because it's going to be too small, but it says, this passage has been typeset as poetry because many scholars regard this passage as poetic. So you might be thinking, fine, that's great. Like, you know, it's got some extra tabs or indenting. There's some extra line breaks. You know, hallelujah, I hear some people say. But as mundane as talking about biblical text formatting is um, or may sound, it was actually really helpful for me because when I realized it was meant to be a poem of sorts, the order and structure all became much more clear. And the key to it was this. Next slide. Abba. And not Abba as in the Swedish group, not Abba even as Abba Father, but actually as an ABBA, or particularly in this case, ABCCBA. Next slide. Because this poetic passage is set out a bit like a palindrome. It goes forwards and then it goes backwards. Like the word Abba itself, or like the name Eve as in Adam and Eve, or what Adam allegedly said to Eve when they first met. Madam, I'm Adam, also a palindrome. And palindromes, interestingly, are not a foreign concept um, when it comes to Christianity. There's this famous, though, cryptic uh, Latin palindromic word square called the Sator Square in the middle there, which has been attached to Christianity since the um, early days. And you might recognize it if you watch the 2020 Christopher Nolan uh, movie Tenet, anyone? Because uh, that's the central line. And my goodness, that was a confusing movie. Uh, but in terms of literature, the technique where there's a palindromic ABBA-type structure is called a chiasmus, because the text forms this sort of X shape like the Greek letter chi, so hence chiasmus. And it's actually used a lot in biblical and also non-biblical texts. And if we get back to our passage, the next slide, and apply it here to verses 15 to 19, we can see that ABCCBA pattern. So I've made them different colors to show it. You can see the green at the top and the bottom match, the yellow second from the top and bottom, and the third orange section in the middle. And what's really nice about it, at least from my perspective, is that now there's three easy points for us to discuss, specifically three reasons why Jesus is the answer. So let's have a look at those things. So with the first found in the first and last verses, verses 15 and 19, starting with verse 15, which says, he is the image of the invisible God, which in the context of the prior verses is talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, which is a statement that, to be honest, could be interpreted in a few very significantly different ways. For starters, you could say that, well, if Jesus is God's image, then is he just like a picture of God? At its most basic, say, for example, like a picture of a car, next slide, gives you a bit of an idea of what the thing looks like, but the picture itself has no value. So surely that's not what Paul meant. So is it more like a painting, like it's a representation of something, and whilst it isn't the same thing, it has a separate value of its own? Or is it like, and perhaps this is a bit topical, like an NFT, a non-fungible token, which could have immense value, and then a bit later, absolutely none at all? 
Well, to me, none of those things sound right. So let's assume that it means none of those things. Instead, if we step it up a bit, perhaps it means that Jesus is the, um, is the image of God in the same way that we are in the image of God. Take Genesis 127, for example. I'll go down on the next slide. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image after our likeness. So is Jesus just like us in that regard? Well, if we look carefully at those verses, I think the answer would also be no. Because in the Genesis verse, it says we are made in God's image. But in Colossians, it actually doesn't say that about Jesus. No, it says he is the image of God. Not in the image, but the image. And that's an important distinction because we are made in his image, in his likeness. We're sort of like little replicas of the real deal. We're a bit more like a living painting or photo um, of the original thing if we go back to those prior examples. But Jesus is not a replica. It says he is the image of God. He is the visible representation of God himself. The invisible made visible. As Jesus says to Philip in John 14.9, the person who has seen me has seen the Father. Not seen someone who just looks like the Father, he has actually seen the Father. And this really ties in with our whole concept of what the Trinity is. One God, three persons. And actually, we can see this even more in that Genesis verse 2. Notice it says, let us make humankind in our image. It's in plural form. Because it wasn't just God the Father creating the world, but God in his three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Or as some people like to put it, creation is from the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. So our point is, Jesus is not a lesser replica of God. He is God, but in that wonderful mystery, that's the Trinity. And just in case we needed any more evidence of this, Paul gives it to us in the reciprocating verse of the chiasmus, verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in the Son. Not part of God, not just a representation of God, but all of God, all of his fullness for a double emphasis there. So what's the first reason why Jesus is the answer? It's because Jesus is God. So what's the second reason? Well, if we look at the next couple of verses together, I think we'll see it's pretty straightforward. In the second half of verse 15, it says, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. And in verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church, as well as the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself may become first in all things. And also verse 17, he himself is before all things. Firstborn, head, beginning, first, before. Our second reason why Jesus is the answer is simply that he's first. Jesus is first. And there's actually not too much to say on this point, except maybe to emphasize one thing which we've kind of alluded to already, which is that it's important to know that um, it says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation and not the firstborn of creation. And why does that matter? Well, if he was the firstborn of creation, that will imply he was created just like us, but just happened to be the first one, like the first one off the assembly line. But as we saw in our verses before, Jesus was not created like us, but instead was already there at the time of creation. In fact, was part of that creation process. And we see a very similar concept at the very start of John's Gospel, chapters, uh, um, chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was fully God. So that's our point one again. The Word was with God in the beginning. All things were created by Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. So the Word, that is Jesus, 
was not the first to be created, but he was first in the sense that he was there from the start. He was there from the beginning. And we can also consider the term firstborn over creation to also be a reference to his primary importance, like the traditional role of the you know, firstborn child. So why is Jesus the answer according to Paul? Number one, because Jesus is God. And number two, because Jesus is first. So how about number three as to why Jesus is the answer? Well, it's that Jesus is all. Jesus is all, a double L. Which I must admit is a very vague, ethereal-sounding statement. Jesus is all. It's a bit Zoolander too, if anyone knows the reference. But what does it mean that Jesus is all? Well, let's read the verses. For all things in heaven on earth were created in him, All things, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions, whether principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and all things are held together in him. Jesus is all. And a few things probably strike you as you read that. Firstly, it says all things a lot, five times. In fact, seven times in our whole passage. But what are all these things? Well, they're all things. Uh, which is not very helpful, so let's break it down. There's, in fact, really two major categories that Paul mentions. Heaven and earth, visible and invisible, really saying that he's not just talking about the you know, sort of physical or natural things, but also the supernatural things too. And it's probably less obvious when he then mentions uh, thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers, but this is where that angelology potentially comes in. Because some people believe that these are descriptions of different types and levels of angels. Thrones being the highest order of angels who sort of commune and attend to God. And dominions are the sort of a lower level who attend to God's creations. Powers are those who resist evil forces. So they're to do with the supernatural. Principalities with worldly nations, though the natural. So maybe. I mean, I don't think anyone really knows. But regardless, the main point is, is that Paul is saying that Jesus is, is involved in all things, both earthly and heavenly. But involved in what way? Well, not surprisingly, in all ways. Paul says Jesus is involved in all things in all ways, which again sounds a bit vague. But we see this best in regard to creation. Paul says that all things were what? Created in him, created through him, and created for him. In him, through him, for him basically choose your preposition. But what exactly does that mean? Well, created for him means that creation was for his glory. And that's something we might attribute more to, you know, God the Father. But from a Trinity point of view, it it still makes sense. How about created through him? Well, that presumably means creation occurred using his power. And that might be something that you might attribute more to the Holy Spirit. But again, from a Trinity point of view, all good. But then how about created in him? All things were created in Jesus. Well, to me, this is the toughest one. I'll be lying if I said I fully understood it. However, you get the sense that, yes, creation was for him, for his glory, and creation was through him by his power, but was also in him in the sense that all this occurs within the vastness of who Jesus is. And that's a concept which, I guess, as an understatement, is a little mind-boggling. And it's also really reinforced in verse 17 as well, where it says, all things are held together in him. So not only is creation or all creation within him, it says Jesus is holding it all together. Like sort of gravity, I suppose, but not just for the physical universe, but for the spiritual universe too. So it's a pretty crazy concept. It's something I think we, we struggle to comprehend. 
In every way, whether in or through or for, Jesus is part of all things in all ways, to a point that we can't fully grasp it, and we probably never will in this life. So I did tell you that there was some tough theology here. So why is Jesus the answer? Because number one, Jesus is God. Number two, Jesus is first. And now Jesus is all. But I hear you say, well, that's why he is the answer. But what is he the answer for? And that's a good question. I mean, all of this has been quite sort of detailed and difficult uh, theology. But what is the purpose of all of it? Well, that's what we're going to look at next. And to address that, we, next, we need to next look at a few additional verses. So going back to verse 13 and 14, which was from last week's passage, and forward to verse 20, because when I said before that the passage was chiastic, um, it's actually more so than we've seen so far. It's actually more of an ABCD, DCBA setup, because these verses are also part of it. So what do they say? Let's read and consider what is Jesus the answer for. Verse 13. He delivered us from the power of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And verse 20, And through him to reconcile all things to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, through him whether things on earth or things in heaven. So what's the common theme here? What is Jesus the answer for? It is, of course, creation's redemption, the reconciliation of all things, saving a broken and lost world. And Paul provides us with some really strong imagery of this. He said, it says, he delivered us from the power of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son he loves. We see this active work of Christ moving all of creation from a place of sin, a place of judgment, a place of death, and instead to a kingdom, the kingdom of his Son, delivering, redeeming, and forgiving. It says he reconciled all things. And how? As it says, by making peace through the blood of his cross. And that's the gospel, the good news about Christ. That whilst because of sin, humanity was separated from God, Jesus, through his sacrifice on the cross, allowed the world to come back in communion with the Father. And that really is the core of this passage, what Jesus is the answer for. Paul is saying here, Jesus' sacrifice means redemption for us, reconciliation for us. It is Jesus for us. And if we were to be even more specific, it's to say that Jesus is God for us, Jesus is first for us, and Jesus is all for us. Because all those things we talked about before, all that difficult theology we covered previously, wasn't for nothing. It was essential to understand why Jesus is the answer for reconciling the world. We said, uh, firstly, that Jesus is God, and that needed to be true, otherwise his death on the cross wouldn't mean anything. If Jesus was just a good person and a great teacher or an amazing prophet, if he was crucified, that would be sad, it would be tragic, but it wouldn't save anyone. It was only because Jesus is God, the image of the invisible God, the fullness of God within him, that his death can properly pay the penalty of the world's sins. Jesus is God for us. We said, secondly, that Jesus is first, and again, that had to be true. If he didn't go before us, if he wasn't first in everything, and particularly if he wasn't first born from the dead, then death in this world would still be the final chapter for everyone. But because he leads in everything, because he was the first to be resurrected, we too can have confidence that death will not have victory over all mankind either. Jesus is first for us. 
And thirdly, we said Jesus is all. Again, something that must be the truth. Because if Jesus didn't bridge that gap between the natural and the supernatural, between heaven and earth, if he wasn't the mediator between God and humankind, then all of humanity will be locked into this finite physical world forever. But as the Lord of earth and heaven, instead there's a hope for a future in eternity with him, delivered from the power of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his son. But things don't just end there. As you realize, we've still got um, two more points to go in our remaining verses this morning. And in a very convenient coincidence, I guess, our remaining points might sound a little bit familiar. Because you might remember that Paul said in regard to Jesus that all things were created for him, in him, and through him. And we've just said firstly that Jesus is the answer for reconciliation because Jesus is for us. Well, as it turns out, our next two points are Jesus in us and Jesus through us. So for us, in us, through us. So what do the second two mean? Well, let's read verses uh, 21 to 23 next. And you were at one time strangers and enemies in your minds as expressed through your evil deeds. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through death to present you holy, without blemish and blameless before him. If indeed you remain in the faith, established and firm, without shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has also been preached in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become its servant. So again, Paul is talking about reconciliation, right? It says it right there, reconciled. But there's a difference here because in our prior passage, Paul described God's plan to reconcile all things to himself, all things, all of creation. However, here instead, he has a different focus. Here, Paul is talking about what? Or in fact, about who? As I've highlighted in the text, you. That is me, that is you. Paul's no longer talking about redeeming all things. Now he's talking about what the plan is for each of us, you and me, one by one. And you might ask, but aren't we all part of all creation? I mean, aren't you, aren't I, part of all things? And I guess that's true, we are. And didn't we say that Jesus died to reconcile all things? Well, we did. So doesn't that mean that we are all already reconciled? And this is where things get a little bit complex, because Jesus' actions on the cross have the power to reconcile all creation. I think that's true. I think the answer, you know, is, is that true? The answer would be yes. But are all people individually reconciled to God? I think the answer would have to be no. And this is where we may need to consider a distinction between the reconciliation provided for Jesus, uh, by Jesus for us versus the reconciliation provided for Jesus by Jesus in us. Because, yes, Jesus did indeed die on the cross to take the sins of the world and reconcile all creation to the Father. That's what Jesus did for all of us, for all of creation. That was verse 20. But for each one of us to be saved, we must personally have Jesus in us. Not just recognizing uh, Jesus' work for us, but having Jesus in us. And it's definitely not a perfect analogy, but some people would say it's a bit like if you're stranded in the desert, dying of thirst, and after many days, a plane sees you, drops off a large container of water, uh, you know, right next to you. So if you crawl over to the container, you know, you hold it, you thank God like that it was provided for you, and that's all you do, well, is it going to save you? No. The only way it will save you is if you drink it, if it's in you. 
And I'm aware I'm treading on some, a bit of a minefield here with this analogy. I think Simon's smiling at me. Because I recognize there's different schools of thought when it comes to things like this. And this is where we could get caught up with terms like limited, unlimited, determined, prevenient, irresistible, irresistible grace, predestination, free will, and so on. But we're not going to do that this morning. Instead, I want us to remember the classic verse about the gospel in John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever what? Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have, uh, but have eternal life. And also John 1.12, But to all who received him, those who believe in his name, he has given the right to become God's children. So no matter how you think about the mechanics of how salvation and predestination, all those things works, and that's probably something better left to God than to us, I think. From our point of view, at least, Scripture tells us we must believe in Him. Not just believe about Him, but believe in and rest our faith in Him and receive Him. It can't just be mentally recognizing the work of Jesus for us. It must be, having, it must be to have the living uh, Savior, Jesus, in us. And it's probably best said in a very familiar verse to this church, Sun Life, 1 John 5, 12. Whoever has the Son of God, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever uh, does not have the Son of God does not have life. So what I want to drive home this morning in this part of the passage is this, that whilst Jesus' sacrifice was for all of us, in fact, for all the world, all of creation, and sufficient for all of creation, each of us individually must have a personal living relationship with Jesus ourselves. We must have Jesus as our own personal Lord and Savior, not just Jesus for us, but Jesus in us. And this morning, if there's anyone who hasn't had that wonderful opportunity to have Jesus in your life, then I pray that perhaps today might be the day that that could change. And that just leaves us with our last major point and our last passage to cover this morning, which is in verses 24 to 29. So let's start reading it from verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I fill up in my physical body for the sake of his body, the church, what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. I became a servant of the church according to the stewardship from God given to me for you in order to complete the word of God. That is the mystery that has been kept hidden from ages and generations, but has now been revealed to his saints. And before we read the rest of the verses, you'll note I've highlighted a couple of perhaps slightly odd things that Paul says here. The first is in verse 24, where it says, what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ? So what does that mean? Does it mean that Christ's sufferings weren't enough? So then maybe those outsiders who were criticizing the church in Colossae were right then. Maybe what they had wasn't enough. But remember we had said that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient to redeem all of creation. That is, all things. Then if so, how could anything be lacking? And then in verse 25, Paul says he became a servant of the church in order to complete the word of God, which kind of does suggest that God's word is currently incomplete, right? Then maybe we're missing part of his revelation. But what we have to understand, of course, is the context of these verses. That is, what is this whole part of this passage telling us about? And we get a hint of it already in verse 26, where it talks about a mystery kept hidden for ages, but now revealed to his saints. And then we keep reading on from verse 27 to 29. It says this, God wanted to make known to them the glorious riches of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him by instructing and teaching all people with all wisdom so that we may present every person mature in Christ. 
Toward this goal, I also labor, struggling according to his power that powerfully works in me. So what is this mystery that Paul is talking about, this mystery of glorious riches? It is Christ in you, that he has reconciled you. What we just talked about, the good news about Jesus, the gospel. Making it known, proclaiming it, teaching and instructing all people. What he's talking about is what we would normally refer to as evangelism and discipleship. And in that context, his previous statements start to make some sense. What is lacking in the sufferings of Christ? Well, nothing in terms of the power that his sacrifice had to be able to reconcile all of creation. But what is left to be done? It is to make known the glorious riches of the mystery for us to share Christ, the hope of glory, with those who don't know him. And what is incomplete in the word of God? Well, nothing in terms of him having given us everything we need for life and godliness. But what is left to be done to proclaim him so that we can present every person mature in Christ, as Paul says. So what is lacking? It's us. And what is left to be done is what we have been given to do. Because although God could do everything, he has chosen to complete his mission through humankind, through people like Paul, through people like you and me. Because we are called to be his co-workers in his great co-mission, to go and make disciples of all nations. So this part of the passage is not about Jesus being for us. It's not about Jesus being in us, but it's about Jesus working through us. That we are to be Jesus to those around us. And Paul makes it so clear in his choice of words too. He says really, very intentionally there, I fill up in my physical body for the sake of his body, the church. Just as he said in verse 22 that Jesus gave his physical body for him and for us. Because Paul knows that as Jesus works through him, he, that is Paul, will be the embodiment of Jesus to those around him. And that's the same for us too. That as Jesus works through us, we become the body of Jesus to all that we meet. That is that we will be, in fact, that we must be the image of Christ to others. Just as we as it said in the very first verse, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So we spiritually are to be the image of Jesus to those around us, the invisible made visible. So what is God's word for us today through this passage in Colossians? What I think it is, is this. That Paul was telling the believers of Colossae that what they had been taught was right. That the most important thing for them to remember was always that Jesus is the answer. The answer because he is God, because he is first, and because he is all. And what is he the answer to? He's the answer for reconciliation. For all of creation needing to be reconciled, Jesus is the answer for us. For each person need to be needing to be reconciled, Jesus is the answer in us. And for all those around us needing to be reconciled, Jesus is the answer through us. He is the answer for the world, the answer for me, the answer for you. Jesus is the answer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this passage. And we thank you again for this letter that you had your servant Paul write to this church and to us. And we pray that this morning that the truths that you wanted to teach us would have been revealed to us indeed. We thank you for your son, Jesus. And that whilst in this life we may, ne we may never fully comprehend it, God, we thank you for who he is, that he is you, that your fullness is in him. And therefore his sacrifice, your sacrifice by his blood on the cross, 
allowed us to be delivered from darkness and transferred into your kingdom. That our sins could be forgiven, that we could be redeemed, that we could be put into right relationship with you. We thank you for your promise that if we believe in you, that if we receive you and we have you as our Lord and Savior, that we are no longer considered strangers to you, but instead are considered your children. And that there are brothers and sisters here today who have not made that step yet, who don't know you yet as Lord, then I pray you will convict them of your goodness and your glory this day so they can know you as Father and as friend. And for all of us who have had that, that wonderful privilege already, I pray that you would work through us, that you would make yourself known through our broken selves, that as best we can, that we can reflect your love to others. Help us to do that, that we be the image of your Son, Jesus, to all that we meet, so we can point them to the answer, which is you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's rise and lift our worship.